Helen's Babies, Part 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Helen's Babies by John Haberton, Part 9. When the procession had fairly passed the house, I released the boys and heard two prolonged howls for my pains. Then I asked Budge if he wasn't ashamed to talk that way when a funeral was passing. "'Twasn't a funeral,' said he. "'Twas only a deader, and deaders can't hear nothin'. "'But the people in the carriages could,' said I. "'Well,' said he, "'they was so glad that the other part of the deader had gone to heaven "'that they didn't care what I said. "'Everybody's glad when the other parts of deaders go to heaven. "'Papa told me to be glad that dear little Philly was in heaven, and I was. "'But I do want to see him again awful.' "'Want to she Philly den awful,' said Toddy, "'as I kissed Budge and hurried off to the library, "'unfit just then to administer farther instruction or reproof.' Of one thing I was very certain. I wished the rain would cease falling so the children could go out of doors and I could get a little rest and freedom from responsibility. But the skies showed no signs of being emptied. The boys were snarling on the stairway, and I was losing my temper quite rapidly. Suddenly I bethought me of one of the delights of my own childish days, the making of scrapbooks. One of Tom's library drawers held a great many ladies' journals— of course Helen meant to have them bound, but I could easily repurchase the numbers for her. They would cost two or three dollars, but peace was cheap at that price. On a high shelf in the playroom I had seen some supplementary volumes of mercantile agency reports, which would in time reach the rag-bag. There was a bottle of mucilage in the library desk, and the children owned an old pair of scissors. Within five minutes I had located two happy children on the bathroom floor— taught them to cut out pictures, which operation I quickly found they understood as well as I did, and to paste them into the extemporized scrapbook. Then I left them, recalling something from Newman Hall's address on the dignity of labor. Why hadn't I thought before of showing my nephews some way of occupying their mind and hands? Who could blame the helpless little things for following every prompting of their unguided minds? Had I not a hundred times been told, when sent to the woodpile or the weediest part of the garden in my youthful days, that Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do? Never again would I blame children for being mischievous when their minds were neglected. I spent a peaceful, pleasant hour over my novel, when I felt that a fresh cigar would be acceptable. Going upstairs in search of one, I found that Budge had filled the bathtub with water, and was sailing boats, that is, hair-brushes. Even this seemed too mild an offence to call for a rebuke, so I passed on without disturbing him, and went to my own room. I heard Toddy's voice, and having heard from my sister that Toddy's conversations with himself were worth listening to, I paused outside the door. I heard Toddy softly murmur, "'Zare, pity eighty. "'Tay there. Now, ittle boy, I put you with your mudder, "'tause mudders likes their little boys with em. "'And you shall have ittle sister tudder side of you, there. "'Now, ittle boys and ittle girls mudder, don't you feel happy? "'Isn't I awful good to give you your ittle childrens? "'You ought to say, thank you, Toddy. "'You's a nice, sweet little gentleman.' 
I peered cautiously, then I entered the room hastily. I didn't say anything for a moment, for it was impossible to do justice, impromptu, to the subject. Toddie had a progressive mind. If pictorial ornamentation was good for old books, why should not similar ornamentation be extended to objects more likely to be seen? Such may not have been Toddie's line of thought, but his recent operations warranted such a supposition. He had cut out a number of pictures, and pasted them upon the wall of my room, my sister's darling room, with its walls tinted exquisitely in pink. As a member of a hanging committee, Toddie would hardly have satisfied taller people, but he had arranged the pictures quite regularly, at about the height of his own eyes, had favored no one artist more than another, and had hung indiscriminately figure-pieces, landscapes, and genre-pictures. The temporary break of wall-line occasioned by the door communicating with his own room, he had overcome by closing the door and carrying a line of pictures across its lower panels. Occasionally a picture fell off the wall, but the mucilage remained faithful and glistened with its fervor of devotion. And yet so untouched was I by this artistic display, that when I found strength to shout, Toddy! It was in a tone which caused this industrious amateur decorator to start violently and drop his mucilage bottle, open end first, upon the carpet. "'What will Mamma say?' I asked. Toddy gazed, first blankly, and then inquiringly into my face. Finding no answer or sympathy there, he burst into tears and replied, "'I dunno." The ringing of the lunch-bell changed Toddy from a tearful cherub into a very practical, business-like boy, and shouting, "'Come on, Budge!' he hurried downstairs, while I tormented myself with wonder as to how I could best, and most quickly, undo the mischief Toddy had done. I will concede to my nephews the credit of keeping reasonably quiet during meals— their tongues doubtless longed to be active in both the principal capacities of those useful members, but they had no doubt as to how to choose between silence and hunger. The result was a reasonably comfortable half-hour. Just as I began to cut a melon, Budge broke the silence by exclaiming, "'Oh, Uncle Harry, we haven't been out to see the goat to-day.' "'Budge,' I replied, "'I'll carry you out there under an umbrella after lunch,' and you may play with that goat all the afternoon, if you like. "'Oh, won't that be nice!' exclaimed Budge. "'The poor goat! He'll think I don't love him a bit, "'cause I haven't been to see him to-day. "'Does goats go to heaven when they die, Uncle Harry?' "'Guess not. They'd make trouble in the golden streets, I'm afraid.' "'Oh, dear! Then Philly can't see my goat. "'I'm so awful sorry,' said Budge. "'I can see your goat, Budgie,' suggested Toddy. Huh, said Budge, very contemptuously. "'You ain't dead.' "'Well, I's going to be dead some day, "'and zen your nasty old goat shan't see me a bit. "'See how he likes that.' "'And Toddy made a ferocious attack "'on a slice of melon nearly as large as himself. "'After lunch, Toddy was sent to his room "'to take his afternoon nap, "'and Budge went to the barn on my shoulders.' I gave Mike a dollar, with instructions to keep Budge in sight, to keep him from teasing the goat, and to prevent his being impaled or butted. 
Then I stretched myself on a lounge, and wondered whether only half a day of daylight had elapsed, since I and the most adorable woman in the world had been so happy together. How much happier I would be when next I met her! The very torments of this rainy day would make my joy seem all the dearer and more intense. I dreamed happily for a few moments with my eyes open, and then somehow they closed, without my knowledge. What put into my mind the wreck scene from the play of David Copperfield I don't know, but there it came, and in my dream I was sitting in the balcony at Booth's, and taking a proper interest in the scene, when it occurred to me that the thunder had less of reverberation and more woodenness than good stage thunder should have. The mental exertion I underwent on this subject disturbed the course of my nap, but as wakefulness returned, the sound of the poorly simulated thunder did not cease. On the contrary, it was just as noisy and more hopelessly a counterfeit than ever. What could the sound be? I stepped through the window to the piazza, and the sound was directly over my head. I sprang down the terrace and out upon the lawn, looked up, and beheld my youngest nephew strutting back and forth on the tin roof of the piazza, holding over his head a ragged old parasol. I roared, "'Go in, Toddy, this instant!' The sound of my voice startled the young man so severely that he lost his footing, fell, and began to roll toward the edge, and to scream, both operations being performed with great rapidity." I ran to catch him as he fell, but the outer edge of the water-trough was high enough to arrest his progress, though it had no effect in reducing the volume of his howls. "'Toddy!' I shouted. "'Lie perfectly still until Uncle can get to you. Do you hear?' "'Es, but don't want to lie till,' came in reply from the roof. "'Tan't she nothin' but sky and rain?' "'Lie still,' I reiterated, "'or I'll whip you dreadfully.' Then I dashed upstairs, removed my shoes, climbed out, and rescued Toddy, shook him soundly, and then shook myself. "'I was only just pyayin' mamma, and walkin' in jayane with an umbayala,' Toddy explained. I threw him upon his bed, and departed. It was plain that neither logic, threats, nor the presence of danger could keep this dreadful child from doing whatever he chose. What other means of restraint could be employed?' Although not as religious a man as my good mother could wish, I really wondered whether prayer, as a last resort, might not be effective. For his good and my own peace I would cheerfully have read through the whole prayer-book. I could hardly have done it just then, though, for Mike solicited an audience at the back door, and reported that Budge had given the carriage sponge to the goat, put handfuls of oats into the pump-cylinder— pulled hairs out of the black mare's tail, and with a sharp nail drawn pictures on the enamel of the carriage body. Budge made no denial, but looked very much aggrieved, and remarked that he couldn't never be happy without somebody having to go get bothered, and he wished there wasn't nobody in the world but organ-grinders and candy-store men. He followed me into the house, flung himself into a chair, put on a look which I imagine Byron wore before he was old enough to be malicious, and exclaimed, "'I don't see what little boys was made for anyhow "'if everybody gets cross with them "'and don't let them do what they want to. "'I'll bet when I get to heaven "'the Lord won't be as ugly to me as Mike is, "'and some other folks, too. "'I wish I could die and be buried right away, "'me and the goat, and go to heaven "'where we wouldn't be scolded.' "'Poor little fellow! 
First I laughed inwardly at his idea of heaven, and then I wondered whether my own was very different from it, or any more creditable. I had no time to spend even in pious reflection, however. Budge was quite wet, his shoes were soaking, and he already had an attack of catarrh, so I took him to his room and redressed him, wondering all the while how much similar duties my own father had had to do by me had shortened his life. And how, with such a son as I was, he lived as long as he did. The idea that I was in some slight degree atoning for my early sins so filled my thoughts that I did not at first notice the absence of Toddy. When it did become evident to me that my youngest nephew was not in the bed in which I had placed him, I went in search of him. He was in none of the chambers, but hearing gentle murmurs issue from a long light closet, I looked in and saw Toddy sitting on the floor and eating the cheese out of a mouse trap. A squeak of my boots betrayed me, and Toddy, equal to the emergency, sprang to his feet and exclaimed, I didn't hurt the ittle mousy one bitty, I just letted him out, and he runned it away. And still it rained. Oh, for a single hour of sunlight, so that the mud might be only damp dirt, and the children could play without tormenting other people. But it was not to be. Slowly, and by the aid of songs, stories, and improvised menagerie, in which I personated every animal, besides playing ostrich and armadillo, and a great many disagreements, the afternoon wore to its close, and my heart slowly lightened. Only an hour or two more, and the children would be in bed for the night, and then I would enjoy, in unutterable measure, the peaceful hours which would be mine. Even now they were inclined to behave themselves, they were tired and hungry, and stretched themselves on the floor to await dinner. I embraced the opportunity to return to my book, but I had hardly read a page when a combined crash and scream summoned me to the dining-room. On the floor lay Toddy, a great many dishes, a roast leg of lamb, several ears of green corn, the butter-dish and its contents, and several other misplaced edibles. One thing was quite evident. The scalding contents of the gravy-dish had been emptied on Toddy's arm, and how severely the poor child might be scalded I did not know. I hastily slit open his sleeve from wrist to shoulder, and found the skin very red, so, remembering my mother's favorite treatment for scalds and burns, I quickly spread the contents of a dish of mashed potato on a clean handkerchief, and wound the whole around Toddy's arm as a poultice. Then I demanded an explanation. "'I was only just reachin' for a piece of bread,' sobbed Toddy, "'and then the bad old table beginned to fow all its fings at me, and tumble down bang.' He undoubtedly told the truth as far as he knew it, but reaching over tables is a bad habit in small boys, especially when their mothers cling to old-fashioned heirlooms of tables, which have folding leaves. So I banished Toddy to his room, supperless, to think of what he had done. With Budge alone I had a comfortable dinner off the salvage from the wreck caused by Toddy, and then I went upstairs to see if the offender had repented. It was hard to tell, by sight, whether he had or not, for his back was to me, as he flattened his nose against the window, but I could see that my poultice was gone. "'Where is what uncle put on your arm, Toddy?' I asked. "'I ate it up,' said the truthful youth. "'Did you eat the handkerchief, too?' "'No, I fwoed nasty old handkerchief out the window. Don't want dirty old handkerchiefs in my nice little room.' 
I was so glad that his burn had been slight that I forgave the insult to my handkerchief, and called up Budge, so that I might at once get both boys into bed and emerge from the bondage in which I had lived all day long. But the task was no easy one. Of course, my brother-in-law, Tom Lawrence, knows better than any other man the necessities of his own children, but no children of mine shall ever be taught so many methods of imposing upon parental good-nature. Their program called for stories, songs, moral conversations, frolics, the presentation of pennies, the dropping of the same, at long intervals, into tin savings-banks, followed by a deafening shaking-up of both banks. Then a prayer must be offered, and no conventional one would be tolerated. Then the boys performed their own devotions, after which I was allowed to depart, with an interchange of God bless you's. As this evening I left the room with their innocent benedictions sounding in my ears, a sense of personal weakness, induced by the events of the day, moved me to fervently respond, Amen. End of Part 9 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 30th, 2008 in San Diego, California.